Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hi, Chris. How's it going? Welcome to the podcast. A lot of stuff going on at the moment in relation to global corporate taxation and where all of this seems to have gotten a real kickstart in the last few days was the G7 meeting of finance ministers at the weekend. And indeed, next weekend, there's another G7 meeting of global leaders in Cornwall. Before we discuss you know what they are discussing particularly in relation to taxation could you explain a little bit about what the g7 is what its significance is and i guess how influential it is in terms of driving policy because it's one thing making decisions um it's something totally different i think in ensuring that those decisions are actually implemented so could you talk about the significance and influence of g7 it goes back a long way and has taken several forms over several decades, actually. And my involvement or awareness even of the G7 began all the way back in the 1980s, when the focus of these countries, and it's the US, Japan, Germany, France, Italy, and Canada, the seven largest economies in the world at the time. So if people are wondering why countries like China and India and Brazil other big economies aren't part of this grouping. It's rooted in the G7 history. For a while, it was the G8. That was when Russia was involved and Russia got kicked out when it developed a tendency to invade small neighboring countries. And so it went from G7 to G8 back to G7. There is a G20 where all a lot of other countries are involved. 
But it goes back, as I say, to at least the 1980s, when the focus for the G7 was principally, almost exclusively, exchange rates. That might seem strange to a modern audience because exchange rates don't often make the headlines in the way that they used to back then. And it was mostly about controlling either dollar weakness or dollar strength. And there were lots of G7 meetings around uh, what was called at the time the twin deficits, which, again, might seem almost anachronistic to a lot of to a lot of listeners. And the twin deficits being the U.S.'s fiscal deficit and external trade and balance of payments deficits. And there was lots of angst about what that all meant. And there was lots of attempts to control the dollar's exchange rate. My involvement with it um, stemmed from a spell of work I was doing at the time with the Bank of Ireland. I was an economist back then, you will remember, actually, Jim. And there was a shadow organization called the G7 Council, which was essentially a group of economists, treasury, finance ministry officials, central bankers who didn't make it to the main G7 and were invited to a shadow G7 meeting that mirrored the the main meeting and was just another talking shop, essentially. The reason why I was invited, I think, was because they thought at the time that um, Bank of Ireland was the central bank of Ireland. At least that was my theory back then and why I got invited to meetings in Washington, London, Tokyo and places like that. So it's morphed from being narrowly technically focused on exchange rates through broader issues all the way through today, as you have mentioned, the the tax issue, which has been rumbling along, not just at the G7 level, but the OECD and the EU have been the main other supranational organizations driving international policy coordination. That coordination was a big deal in the 80s and 90s and has fallen out of favor more recently, particularly during the Trump era, when governments led by Trump set their faces against international cooperation. And clearly, Biden is part of that drive to bring that coordination back. But the G7 is not just about corporate taxation, big though that is. It also, last weekend, uh, has issued all sorts of interesting proposals to do with the environment, for example. And there is a strong suggestion now that companies in many jurisdictions, I think the UK and and Switzerland have already adopted these proposals and other countries are falling into line such that corporations, as part of their annual reporting of of accounts and balance sheet, also have to produce environmental statements according to well-defined criteria. So the green agenda is very much part of the G7 process. And I think it's gotten a bit lost with all of these headlines about tax. But if anything, the environment is more important than the global taxation situation, important though that is. And I think it's worth keeping an eye on these environmental suggestions for, for policy change It's quite clear that there is huge pressure, rightly so in my view, on corporations to establish their green credentials and the G7 is very much part of that, as are central banks. Because as we know from a different context, uh, a lot of central banks are talking about uh, the environment becoming part of their remit. How that works for monetary policy remains to be seen. But clearly the environment is becoming a big part of policy, rightly so, and I think it's, it's well worth watching. But for the purposes of this discussion, Jim, I think it would be very useful for our listeners for you to summarize or at least tell us what you think about these well-trailed corporate taxation proposals. Yeah, before I do that, Chris, uh, just want to make a point. Uh, The G7 is comprised the United States, Canada, Japan, the United Kingdom, Germany, France and Italy. And I just worked out before we did the podcast that that accounts for roughly 58 percent of global wealth. 
and about 46% of global GDP. You talk about the importance of the environment. How can the G7 have any impact on the environmental agenda, given that the biggest polluter and the second largest economy in the world, the largest, depending on what GDP measure you use, China, is not involved. What, what sort of relationship does the G7 have with China? And is there any possibility that G7 initiatives in relation to the environment could actually have any meaningful impact on the behaviour of the Chinese? Well, the short answer is, Jim, I don't know. I can only hope. Obviously, it's anachronistic that China isn't part of this this grouping. As I mentioned, they were, it was put together because at the time they were the seven largest economies all those decades ago. And as you say, the biggest polluter emitter of greenhouse gases is China. They have to be brought to the table. And I would guess that this suggestion from G7 leaders that they are going to force their own corporations to uh, list their environmental impact, to make statements about their emissions that this is a, a hope it may well be a forlorn one that that moral and hard cash pressure will be brought to bear on the chinese this speaks to something that i discussed recently sorry to name drop but i talked on a different podcast with mark carney the ex-governor of the bank of england who's the uk's representative to the cop 27 conference in glasgow later this year he's an environmental ambassador and writes, tweets, blogs, speaks continuously about the environment. And he thinks that there's a good chance that one of the ways in which the world is going to adjust to a zero carbon future is that there's money to be made, that it makes commercial sense for individual companies. And it also makes economic sense for countries to pursue these policies from a growth perspective. We used to think that the green agenda would be growth reducing. And there's been a big vault fast amongst lots of economists and institutions like the IMF that say that if you do green your economies, you are going to increase your growth rate, not decrease it for all sorts of reasons to do mostly with capital investment and essentially productivity enhancing cost of energy reduction, taking advantage of the falling things like solar and wind energy costs and all the rest of it. So it's about leadership. It's about we've got to do something. We can't obviously force the Chinese to do anything other than hope that these sorts of factors will lead them to follow suit. The meeting of finance ministers under the auspices of the G7 in London at the weekend um, attracted a lot more attention in this country than a G7 meeting normally would do. And that's because they were addressing the thorny issue of taxation. And the proposals that they were making, I think, have to be seen in the context of a global tax agenda that has been building over the last few years. Um, at a European Union level, we have the EU trying to push the common consolidated corporate tax base agenda, the so-called CCCTB. And at an OECD level, we have the BEPS project. That's the Base Erosion Profit Shifting project. And what both of those initiatives are trying to achieve is to ensure that companies pay taxation in the jurisdiction where the economic activity actually occurs, rather than where the balance sheet actually resides. And this is particularly significant for Ireland for reasons that um, we'll we'll discuss shortly. But what the G7 Um, agreed at the weekend and it's an agreement Um, it is far from policy 
Um, in July, there's a meeting of G20 in Venice where agreement will have to be reached there and then it will ultimately have to go to um, almost 140 countries for um, you know, rat- ratification. But you'd have to say if the G7, the arguably the seven, well, I won't say the most powerful, but seven very powerful countries, if they agree to this sort of tax agenda, well, then you've got to take it seriously. Because I, I think there's two things that they are really trying to achieve. Um, governments are turning to minimum tax rates now as a means of preserving their tax basis. And that's the, one of the reasons why that's happening is because a lot of developed countries particularly are aging with significant implications for future health expenditure, for care for older people, for pensions and so on. So there is a huge, huge expenditure liability coming down the tracks from demographics. So obviously, countries are really, really intent on ensuring that they can maximize the amount of taxation they can collect within their own jurisdiction. So that's one of the key motivators. Um, Another motivator is to use minimum tax rates um, as a policy to reverse um, nearly four decades, really, of falling corporation tax rates. Some would describe that as a race to the bottom. Uh, What a minimum corporation tax rate would seek to achieve is to reduce the incentive for companies to shift profits from one jurisdiction to a lower tax jurisdiction in order to reduce their tax liability. So what we saw from the G7 finance minister's meeting um, was a, a couple of things, the main one being a minimum corporation tax rate proposal of 15%, which incidentally is um, lower than President Biden's initial suggestion of a 21% um, minimum global corporation tax rate. So what what that basically would mean is that, you know, Ireland can keep its 12.5% corporation tax rate if it wants to. And if a US company operating here, say, pays 12.5% taxation on its profits um, back in its home jurisdiction in the United States, it will have to pay another 2.5% to bring that up to 15%. So that would remove really the the logic of Ireland having a 12.5% corporation tax rate um, if there's a minimum global one of 15%. So that that's an issue that the Irish authorities are going to have to think about. And, and as a second pillar of what's going on at the G7 level um, is to make sure that companies pay a portion of taxation on sorry they pay taxation on a portion of the profits that actually occur within a certain jurisdiction okay so in other words it's trying to um a further move to try and reduce this incentive to move profits from one jurisdiction to a lower tax jurisdiction um i have to say that there's you know clearly been a a mixed reaction in this country um, I have to say that I think anybody who looks at the the moral and the economic justification for what the G7 announced at the weekend, um, I think being objective about it would struggle to argue against it. It makes sense because there is a massive, massive expenditure burden coming down the tracks and making sure that 
big corporations pay their fair amount of tax, I think, is is really, really important. Uh, but clearly, it does pose a significant challenge to Ireland's corporation tax base, because since the 1970s and thereafter, we've been building our industrial model on the basis of a low corporation tax rate. Okay, it initially started off with export sales relief, but ultimately morphed into the low corporation tax rate, which we currently use to entice multinationals. So that corporation tax rate advantage is going to be eroded. The question, of course, is what sort of impact it will have on a couple of things. One is the amount of money we collect in taxation uh, from the corporate sector. And last year in 2020, we hit a record high of 11.8 billion And the modelling within the Department of Finance would suggest that if these sorts of measures proposed by the G7 actually do materialise, that it could take two, two and a half billion of the annual tax take from the corporate sector. Not a huge amount of money in the overall scheme of things, but but it's still a little bit of a hit. Um, The second, and I guess the much more important threat to Ireland would be that if our corporate tax advantage is removed, how attractive will we be for foreign direct investment? You know, will US companies continue to locate in Ireland, for example, in the significant numbers that they currently do? I actually think they will, because I think the fact that we're the only English speaking country in the European Union, um, we we're, we're pretty business friendly still. US companies like operating here. So there's a lot of stuff that we offer apart from the corporation tax rate that will continue to make us relatively attractive. But I think it would be naive for anybody in this country to believe that these changes that are being proposed, that will eventually see the light of day in some form, um, will not have some negative impact on the Irish economy. I must say, Jim, at risk of disagreeing with you a bit, that when somebody starts talking about the moral basis of taxation, my antenna start to twitch. I don't think there's much... Uh, actual morality about taxation it's 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 about pragmatism at the end of the day and what people call morality that is usually dis- ideology disguised um, if you think that the rich should be squeezed or not whatever part of political spectrum you're on tends to drive your thinking on taxation rather than any form of ethical or moral stance but that that's a an almost an excursion in into philosophy the issue of taxing profits where they occur if you think about it longer than 30 seconds, you immediately run into all sorts of difficulties that the OECD project that you mentioned and the EU have run into. Because if you think about, say, the iPhone, if all of the iPhones in the world were made in China and, it, and the ones sold in the United Kingdom were just simply exported from China to, to the United Kingdom and all of the intellectual property, the design, the programming, the software, the design of the chips, the design of the glass, all of that side of the the iPhone is vested in California, say, or Ireland, where sometimes it is, where are the profits? Are they in California? Are they in Ireland? Are they in China? Or are they in the United Kingdom? There isn't a right or wrong answer to that. If you go back to the podcast that we did with Seamus Coffey a little while ago, he would argue, rightly in my view, that the problem is not so much all of that kind of stuff, is that what all of this discussion misses, or at least doesn't focus enough on is that the problems with the global taxation system are many and varied, but one biggie is the US tax code. And if the US sorted out its tax code properly, 
a lot of these issues would not arise and the companies wouldn't be doing what they were doing in quite the same way. But let's not rehearse Seamus's argument. I do think that the point I make about pragmatism and taxation is an important one. This goes back, for example, to our discussion last week about property taxes. One of the reasons why property taxes are such a good idea is that the stuff that you're trying to tax can't move property, whereas this stuff that you're taxing, and these days it's not you know, production of, of widgets, it's, it's intellectual property that you're trying to tax. And where that actually arises or where it's located is a very subjective, not objective question. The second pragmatic thing to make is that you've, you've rightly said it's got to get through an awful lot of national legislators for ratification. And already in the United States, they're kicking off. At least one Republican senator has said no chance. My understanding is that this legislation requires a supermajority in the Senate. So that's going to be tricky in the extreme if the Republican Party en masse kicks off, which I suspect it will. A Republican economist is writing in today's FT, a guy called Glenn Hubbard, that it's fundamentally misconceived in terms of what it's trying to tax, i.e. profits, that in fact cash flow, a different accounting measure, that should be the thing that the, that is being taxed. So I can see this thing having legs in terms of problems, getting it ratified. So I wouldn't be too pessimistic about an immediate hit to Ireland's corporation tax regime in the near future anyway. And I, and I think this one actually is going to run and run. I'm kind of glad you picked me up on the morality bit because I was sort of playing devil's advocate there. Um, my view on taxation is that <laughs> I basically don't like it very much because um, if one believed that one's taxes were going to be used to good effect to you know, address problems, to provide decent public services, etc., I think there'd be a willingness to pay taxes. But of course, the reality is that um, the more money you hand over to governments, the more they waste. That certainly is one perspective, Jim. One thing that I forgot to mention is that, of course, there is a one strand of thinking amongst some economists that corporate, corporate taxation is muddle-headed at the best of times. And that if you think about the profits of any company, eventually they get distributed to shareholders in the form of dividends or in the modern way, sometimes via share buybacks. And that's either income and taxed as income for the shareholder, or if it's via a share buyback, it ultimately ends up as a capital gain for the shareholder, at least in theory, and mostly in practice as well. So in a way, corporate taxation, some would argue, is a form of double taxation. That If only you, if only you taxed dividends and capital gains properly, a lot of this problem would go away. And again, that gets us back to the US tax code, because the one thing that we know that they don't do in the US is tax capital gains properly. And if you look at that leaked report just from the other day uh, about how much tax, both income and capital taxes, American rich people pay, it's, it's five-eighths of basically nothing. And so it's, again, it always comes back to, to problems being created for the rest of us by the US tax code. I would certainly agree that, that corporations should be taxed. But I also think that it's important to tax all income and all capital gains properly and not allow billionaires to pay effective tax rates, not vanishingly different from zero, which is what the, a lot of these people actually end up paying. The other thing I'd say is that within about two nanoseconds of the intention to tax the world's top 100 companies in the way that the G7 say they want to, the British immediately noticed that some of their banks are going to be caught in this net. 
and are already looking for exemptions. So God help us, you know, if that process has started already, where will this end up in six, 12 months time? So I think that there is an awful lot of water to flow under this bridge before we actually see the shape of something real. Before we move on from the topic, uh, I know you a lot of years, Chris, and I remember the first time I worked with you, uh, one of the things I noticed about you was how much you adored at the altar of Paul Krugman. I was fascinated by his op-ed piece in the New York Times on Monday, where the title of the article was Yellen's New Alliance Against Leprechauns. And one of his opening lines in that article was, let me tell you about Apple and the leprechauns. Um, Krugman, a Nobel laureate, voted the best economist under 40 when he was under 40 in the United States some years back. Um, he, he has taken a very, very stringent view on this. So wh- where is he coming from? Because I, I totally buy the logic of what you argue there about the logic of what Seamus Coffey argued so cogently on this podcast a few weeks back. Um, But how can somebody like Krugman get it so wrong? And and I suppose also, how can he, somebody of his standing, engage in such overtly racist overtones? Well, absolutely, Jim. I imagine if if he'd said Janet Yellen lines up against, uh, well, any nationality, if Yellen lines up against some religious grouping, Imagine those sorts of things. Imagine uh, in in this politically correct world, any of those things happening and the furore that he would have generated. But apparently using leprechauns in this incredibly derogatory way is is acceptable. There are so many words to describe different races, different colors, different ethnicities that really I would have thought leprechaun falls into into that category. I think it reveals that he hasn't gotten to grips with the detail of this in the way that somebody like Seamus Coffey has, because this is incredibly tricky. It's it's very complicated. It makes my head spin. I'm, I'm not sure that I understood more than about 60% of the podcast that we did with, with Seamus. And, and we, I know, have thought about this an awful lot over, over many years. So uh, taxation is not Krugman's area. His Nobel Prize was for trade theory, yeah. not, for, not for tax theory or practice. So I suspect he's, he's a bright man. He's a very clever man, but clever people do make mistakes. We we need to remember that, and that all of all of you mentioned my adoration of Paul Krugman. I wouldn't put it quite like that, but I'm, I'm remind, he has been something of a hero as an economist of mine for many many years. I I have agreed with an awful lot of what he's written and said, but you know we sometimes discover that our gods have feet of clay. Yeah, I I kind of have felt over the years and I've read all his stuff and that the book that he really won his Nobel Prize on the back of geography and trade uh, was fantastic uh, exposition of geography and trade at the time but I think over the years uh, Krugman has become more and more driven by ideological leanings I mean he's basically um, in a US context um, a far left mouthpiece for the Democratic Party and uh, I, I just it's, the danger here is that when one allows ideology take over your mind, um, it can lead you in strange directions. So uh, anyway, that's that's just my personal perspective. I wasn't impressed when I saw that headline article in the New York Times um, on Monday, but there you are. Um, moving closer to home, Chris, there's um, negotiations going on at the moment in relation to the Northern Ireland Protocol and some very strange soundings emerging over the last couple of days. 
what the hell is going on in the UK at the moment with the Northern Ireland Protocol? Well, this, Jim, I'm afraid, brings us back to the B word, Brexit. Boris Johnson, when he's asked these days about Brexit, says, oh, God, we've, haven't we sucked that lemon dry? And, I, and <laughs> that's one of the few things he's said in recent times that I, or forever, really, that I can agree with him, that we're just all so fed up with the blinking subject that uh, we'd rather talk about something else. But of course, Brexit is very real, very real for Northern Ireland. And it's chickens coming home to roost, or, or to switch metaphor, we have a sausage war on our hands. What's going on is, is the Northern Ireland Protocol that Boris Johnson and Lord David Frost negotiated and signed. This is the one that establishes the border in the Irish Sea, because Brexit in the way that they decided to do Brexit, which was the hardest of all Brexits, meant logically and inexorably a border in the Irish Sea or a border on the island of Ireland. There's no other third way in any way, shape or form. And they signed up to this. Now, of course, within those parameters, there is some flexibility. And what the EU and the UK are trying to do is trying to inject some flexibility into the protocol that was negotiated and signed by both sides. And the sticking point is proving to be agricultural goods. And in particular, at least if you look at the headlines, chilled meats, sausages and burgers. We have a sausage and burger war on our hands at the moment because if the regulations are applied to the letter of the law on July the 1st, no sausages made on the island of Great Britain will be able to be exported to Northern Ireland. That's the, those are the rules of the single market, that if you depart from agri-food standards, um, you can't, nobody can export chilled meats to the European Union unless there is an alignment of standards. Britain won't align food production standards with the EU because it says that will limit its ability to do trade deals elsewhere. And that, of course, is particularly the United States. The EU is saying all you have to do is align, say you're going to align your food production standards with ours, which is what you've been doing since 1975, 1973, sorry. And, you know, we'll be fine. Britain is saying no. There's an awful lot of headlines being produced in Britain to the effect saying, and this is David Frost in particular saying that the EU is being inflexible. The EU is just applying its rule book and applying both the letter and the spirit of what it was, what it signed. The, Frost is saying we didn't, effectively saying we didn't know what we signed up to. There's a well-known Lord of the Realm, Gavin Barwell. He was Theresa May's chief of staff. He's saying that's absolute hogwash because it was explained to them in graphic detail by people here in the UK, and in particular the EU, what they signed up to actually meant in terms of goods flowing or not flowing across the Irish Sea. So there's an awful lot of politicking going on. There's an awful lot of headlines being generated for domestic consumption. The best guess is that they will achieve some kind of compromise, but the talks have broken up without agreement. The history of this is that they, there's an awful lot of bluff and bluster produced by people like Johnson and Frost, and then they all capitulate at the last minute. But if they don't capitulate, if they don't reach some sort of compromise deal on burgers and sausages then you're going, you in Ireland are going to be putting up a hard border between yourselves and the north. That would be a tragedy in my view and, and just wrong in my view. But it also elicited all sorts of rubbish from uh, a website, a Brussels-based website called politico.eu has suggested in recent days that all of this would force Ireland out of the single market, that the EU would insist that Ireland puts up a trade barrier between itself and the, the whole of the EU, not just Northern Ireland. 
that is pure BS, in my view. That just would never happen. Um, a guy that used to be well-known, um, I suspect many of our listeners have not heard him, wrote in today's Daily, Daily Telegraph, um, a, a rag of a British newspaper, once proud British newspaper, but now a shadow of its former self, suggesting uh, that old chestnut again, that Ireland should now leave the EU. Again, pure BS in my view. But this is all uh, about Britain's obsession with the EU. It's all about the nonsense that we have managed to create for ourselves. And it's going to be very tricky. The Northern Ireland Protocol hangs in the balance. And I think the EU is limbering up to have a fight with Britain if it doesn't do what it wants on agri-foods. And it, it could be big trouble, particularly if it does lead to checks on the island of Ireland. My best guess is that that won't happen because even Johnson knows how awful that would be. But it is a definite possibility. Extraordinary stuff. And, and meanwhile, Mr. Brexit himself, Tim Witherspoon, is suggesting that the UK opens up to bring in um, EU migrants to work in the <laughs> service industry in the United Kingdom. You can't make irony, it up. Irony is dead, Jim. Uh, uh, this certainly this, is. He almost certainly doesn't realise what he's saying. Or if he, you know, because he's not not a terribly self-aware man in in my view. But but as we know, as we've explored on this podcast several times in recent weeks, Britain, like a lot of other economies, particularly the United States, the hospitality business is experiencing severe staff shortages. And Weatherspoons, a a pub chain, it's got a few branches in Dublin. I know I've drunk in a couple of them. Um, I haven't. They, they're experiencing staff shortages. I was out in the centre of London the other day, a couple of mates, and our, we don't do this very often, thank goodness, but we normally conclude our evenings with a short visit to a casino. Uh, there are plenty oh, of those Chris. in London. I know, shocking, isn't it? Um, but it, it, thankfully for my wallet, it was closed, with big signs up saying closed because of staff shortages, which, which if you think about it, a casino, that's extraordinary. Wow, that that is extraordinary. Uh, and I, I was out in Dublin last night um, uh, for a bit of food and a couple of drinks out on the balcony of a, a restaurant in South County Dublin and uh, with my book club, actually. But the um, it was kind of chaotic in the sense that the order took yonks to come. The orders were wrong. They ran out of certain types of drinks. And uh, the girl at one stage brought out the wrong drink and she apologized and said it was her first day in the job. And her colleague, it was also her first day in the job. So it's it's kind of chaotic at the minute, I think. And um, we're, we're going to hear a lot of um, complaints, I think, coming through about customer service and so on. But I wouldn't be blaming the hospitality sector for that. Uh, they they are sort of caught, they're a victim of circumstance at the moment. And it's interesting today, uh, the Department of Social Protection here, as it does every week since March of last year, it publishes data on the number of people and the sector breakdown in receipt of the pandemic unemployment payment. And yesterday, there was 285,000 people in receipt of the PUP, as it's called. And um, that's down from 585,000 last May, the high. So it's coming down as the economy has gradually been reopened. But there's a few things that strike me as being unusual. So, for example, um, there's 23,800 construction workers still in receipt of the PUP. There's over 41,000 
people in the retail sector still in receipt of the PUP. This is despite the fact that the non-essential retail has reopened in recent weeks. So there's a lot of stickiness occurring um, in terms of people coming off the PUP going back to work. And uh, one of the arguments or speculations that's doing the rounds, of course, is that the PUP is so generous that there's no incentive for people to go back to work. And that may be true in some cases. And it's something that the government said in its national recovery plan last week that it is going to address to make sure there is not a disincentive. Uh, But there's a lot of mismatches in the labour market at the moment. And I think we're going to see that reverberate through the service sector and the hospitality sector, particularly over the coming months. So it's, it's, it's really going to be a strange, difficult process to get from where we are to where we want to be. Yeah, it raises all sorts of interesting questions about wage rises. And I think we'll leave this to our next podcast. And the question for that one will be, are higher wages a good thing or a bad thing? And of course, everybody will have a view about that. Um, So let's leave that till next time, Jim. We've run out of time as usual. I'll see you next time. Excellent. Thank you, Chris. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify and other good podcast platforms. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.